0: Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I am so glad you're here. Today we have eight questions. They, they're they all really great. And if you're wondering where I gather the questions for this podcast, it is on the community tab of the YouTube channel where these podcasts are housed. So if you go to YouTube and just search for Ask Katie Anything or go to youtube.com forward slash opinions that don't matter, like my t-shirt, that is where we house all of our podcasts and opinions that don't matter is the podcast that I do with my husband Sean. If you're looking for some lighthearted chit-chat or you want to share some of your stories, um, you can hop over there because that's that's where we do that. Now without further ado, let's just jump into those questions. Now question number 1 says, "Hey Katie, how do you calm yourself down when you're anxious?" Good question. I've done therapy in the past and was given some tools to try, but they never worked and often just made things worse. I hear that a lot. For example, I was told to try squared breathing or one of these counting slash observation ones, but it just made me more irritated. I hate things that are restraining and I find having to breathe or think a certain way restraining, which just makes me more irritated and then more anxious. Do you have any thoughts on why I do this and what might work? Great question. Now, I want you to know that breathing exercises, by and large, Not everybody, but by and large, in my experience, my patients and even members of our community have told me we hate them. They're bad. We don't like them. Now, that doesn't mean they won't help some of us. And if you're one of those people, by all means, use the breathing exercises. However, for most of my anxious patients, breathing just makes us focus more on our breath. And as we focus more on that breath, it makes us feel more anxious because then when we try to quiet, all we hear is our heart beating. All we feel is how sweaty we are or how racing our thoughts are, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, you know, it makes it worse. So ditch the breathing, ditch the counting or observation, the like essentially grounding techniques, because those don't work for you. Now, does that mean that nothing's going to work? No, but I have a feeling that being in your body is really uncomfortable for you. And so we're going to want to do some different types of things. Meaning when you start to feel your anxiety build, we want to do a full body shake, Ooh, that movement, actually moving, might be more helpful for you because you might struggle more with the freeze side of panic. And if anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about, when our body goes into panic or into overwhelm, our limbic system is triggered, which, and not to get too nerdy or too into it, but essentially it our amygdala sounds the alarm that pushes us into fight, flight, or freeze. And when that happens, everybody reacts differently. Some people fight thrashing. Some people want to get the hell out of there for flight, right? And for some of us, we go into freeze. And usually those of us who have repeated panic attacks or have trauma in our past, freeze is often very common. And so for you, freeze might be what you're going into. And so therefore, not moving your body, focusing on your breath or looking out to observe you know, things or counting colors, it's not actually going to help you move out of that freeze state. And so I might encourage you to try a full body shake. And then, maybe some like repetitive motion things like go for a walk, do some coloring. Um, like I've talked about before things that are repetitive, like folding laundry, mopping, or sweeping. I know they sound like very clean oriented, but cleaning, like washing a window, think of the things that you do that are repetitive. And there are probably other things that we can do that I'm looking around my house, trying to consider other things we can do that aren't exercise, but like coloring is one of those. Even writing can feel very repetitive to our bodies. Um, different exercises, playing a a different instrument. There are things that we can do to distract and do, you know, repetitive movements that can also be soothing to our nervous system. Because what we're looking for here isn't a relaxation technique. It's something that will soothe your nervous system and everyone's going to be different. Um, I've had a patient, this is like kind of a full body shake, but she would just do jumping jacks. She's like, I just do like 30 seconds worth of jumping jacks, which to be honest, puts me completely out of breath. So if you're the same, don't worry. Um, And that was how she would regulate. And so find something that works for you. And the reason that these aren't working is it just happened to not be ones that work well with what you're dealing with. If someone who would go into panic tended to get into like the fight or the flight version, meaning that they wanted to lash out at people or they felt the need to move, those things might be helpful because again, it's going opposite of what that instant anxiety urge is that ends up leading us into a panic attack. And for you, it's probably more freeze. So we need to find some better movement. Um, so that would be my advice and my thoughts on it. Now, there was a comment on this that I would like to add on to the question since it's very related. What do you do if having to calm yourself is a trigger? Interesting. There is a talk about using skills to calm yourself in an anxiety provoking or overwhelming or triggering situation. But when I'm in that sort of situation and I think about calming myself, my mind quickly wanders towards people won't like me if I'm not calm. I need to hide my issue or else people will hate me. I'm not good enough. And that's why I need to calm myself. It puts an enormous amount of pressure on me and I just keep thinking about all the situations where people were mad at me because I wasn't calm and it just freaks me out more. Or I get angry about it. How saying I need to be calm is done to silence me or how I couldn't say what was important to me because of the way I said it wasn't appropriate. And then I don't want to do the calming exercises. I don't want to be silenced and uh, made malleable. So this is a great question. What do you do if having to calm yourself is a trigger? Again just like the first person, the first portion of this question, that first person's question, freeze is triggering to you. So instead of thinking, I need to calm myself, how about you think, I need to regulate. I'm dysregulated. I know that sounds silly, but sometimes just reframing how we talk to ourselves about what needs to take place can be life-changing. So instead of saying calming, because I'll be honest, the second I think, I just need to relax. I'm tense. I don't know what it is. It's almost like my body like... Fights back against those kinds of terms, and so instead of saying, "I need to calm myself," I need to regulate, or I feel ugh, agitated. I need to I need to regulate my nervous system, or I just need to find a way to get this uh, energy out. Those might be better ways to reframe so that we don't trigger. And again, instead of moving into those like calming slash relaxing type things, what if we find a repetitive behavior like petting an animal, walking, like I said, folding laundry, sweeping, mopping, uh, washing a window, uh, coloring, journaling. There are a bunch of different things we can do that bring movement, those full body shakes. Maybe we can do like a dance workout. If uh, My friend Caleb, the fitness marshal, has some dance workouts on YouTube for free. They're great. I love him. He's wonderful. That's a wonderful way. Um, Doing some yoga, if you want, just doing that like uh, jumping jacks, like I said, my patient used to do. So there's a ton of different ways that we can kind of calm ourselves or regulate our nervous system, right? Reframing without triggering this, because I'd assume that there's something in your system that says that freeze is not, or being calm is like attached to this free state and being in a free state means we're unsafe. And so you're not wanting to go there. So doing that is super triggering. So that would be my advice there. Now there was a final question on this that I struggle with this too. It would also love some advice. I find that any tools I've tried to help prevent the anxiety from escalating into a panic attack actually just makes me go into a full blown panic. Thank you, GAD and panic disorder. And if you don't know, GAD stands for generalized anxiety disorder. I think it is because inside my head I'm thinking I need to use these tools so I don't have a panic attack, which then obviously makes me think think oh no, I don't want to have a panic attack, and then the cycle just continues until I have one. This seems very counterproductive. How do I stop this? Okay, so I think again because you're you're what's causing you to go into a panic isn't just the freeze state maybe, it's more your thoughts about it. So Your coping skills are your calming tools that we're going to use or our our, uh, regulating tools, right? We're reframing. Our regulating tools are going to be ones that focus on thought and distraction of thought. So these would be things like uh, doing a puzzle. Like there's tons of apps now, but you can even, you know, like Sudoku, let's say. I don't, still don't quite get Sudoku. I mean, I understand it conceptually. I've never really done it. So there's Sudoku, crossword puzzles, journaling, um, even like uh, word unscrambling words or word finder, anything that's going to cause your brain to focus. If you can read, that's great. I haven't had much success with my patients telling them to read when they're feeling anxious, but having something that forces your concentration. um, I'm trying to think of other things, but those are just the ones that come to mind. If you think of any others, please leave them in the comments, but things that that. Force your brain to focus are going to be your, your friend. That's going to be your best friend. Those are going to be the things that you're going to pull up and use. That's why having them on your phone. I think apps make things so much more accessible. So that when you're starting to feel your anxiety come up, you're like, I'm gonna I'm gonna open up. I'm gonna do you know this game or that game or this app or that app, and that will help me regulate. Because if we don't keep your brain busy, then it's going to do this spinning, oh, no, Oh no, Oh no, which we know randomly if anybody, if I haven't mentioned this today, but if you don't know, what causes panic attacks is the overwhelm of our nervous system and getting completely dysregulated. However, we find that they continue to happen. So you could have a panic attack. Let's say I'm in a, an incredibly stressful situation. There's a lot going on in my life it's overwhelming. I feel like I don't have control over it. Boom. I have my first panic attack. Now that could be a one and done. I could have that panic attack because it's situational. I just uh, got a promotion at my job, have to move. I also have a lot more work pressure um, let's say I recently was in a breakup or something else happened in my life or having a child. Or so, you know, there's all this, t- like, even though some things can be deemed good or bad, they're still stressful. Right. Then my concern. So I've had that one panic attack because of the situation. My worry about having another panic attack is actually what causes the panic attack. So it's that, those thoughts that are swirling and swirling that are creating these n- these new panic attacks on top of the old ones. And so if we can stop those thoughts, if we can distract by, with something else, if we can find ways to calm our system down, like I mentioned before with the other questions, you can do full body shakes and try all those things as well. But I think having some go-tos that force your brain out of that cycle is gonna be key. And so what your homework is really gonna be is not only just using these in the moment, but trying to track back your anxiety before it gets too high for you to use your tools. That's like a ton of the work that I do with my patients is just having them figure out what it feels like to be at like a six of anxiety versus like an eight. And I know that might not sound like a big difference, but it's huge. And that six to eight is where I want you to be able to use your tools. Because if we try to use our tools at like eight, nine, 10 being full blown panic attack, we're, we we don't have the time or the ability to fully engage in those coping skills. We're not able to do them. We're already too overwhelmed, too dysregulated, if that makes sense. So anyways, I hope that helps. Know that if one type, for anybody out there, if one resource or tool that your therapist offers doesn't work for you, it's okay. Just let them know there are tons of different types. Like I said, there's ones that move our body. There's ones that, so that gets us out of freeze. There are ones that, um, help us like calm down the ones that we've been talking about, like the breathing exercises, maybe stretching to, if, if we struggle with like fight flight, we want to actually stop the movement. Or if it's mainly in our thoughts, we, our thoughts swirling, then we're going to want some, a coping skill that focuses on that. And so they're going to be catered in, to each individual person and what each of us does most or what we need most. And so be patient as you try out new ones. If they don't work, nothing is lost. Just tell your therapist, hey, I tried that and it didn't work. You know, and your therapist will probably say, well, thanks for letting me know. Let's let's move into different ones. You know, we, there's the list of coping skills is endless. So don't think that there's just these these two or three and that's it. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, Hi, Katie. I was wondering why my therapist never tries to find the root of my problems in therapy. Interesting. I have anorexia and BPD traits. BPD standing for borderline personality disorder. I have all the criteria, but I'm a teen. Oh, gotcha. That's why they say traits. You can't diagnose a personality disorder until someone is 18, technically. Okay. also depression, anxiety and severe dissociation that has impeded on my everyday life. I feel like every therapy session is just talking about my experiences that week and finding ways to cope with, um, finding ways to cope my self-harm and self-injury or sorry, my self-harm and suicidal ideation have both been off the ropes recently. So that's pretty much what we've been harping on. Does she not bring up digging into the root just because I'm living in constant crisis? It's very possible. Or is it just not some therapist's style? I've been seeing her since January and I'd expected that we'd start digging in by now, but we haven't. I know I should ask her, you should. I leave every session feeling unsatisfied, like I have so much more to say. So much happens within a week that I feel like I'm only unpacking a fraction of what I have on the surface. And if we are ever going to start digging into the root, when will that even happen? Because all of the symptoms are just piling up. I'm self-aware enough to know that that's not just depression, but whenever my therapist is talking about my experiences, she only calls it depression. Like, hello, this is not normal, or what depression feels like. Plus, my therapist is a DBT therapist, and it's been months since she's brought up BPD. It's like she's forgot or something. If she keeps calling it depression, does that mean she just thinks that Oh, it's just that just that and that route doesn't need to be done because it's just a chemical imbalance or whatever. Hmm. I have so much trauma, sexual abuse, dad with untreated BPD, horribly abusive romantic relationship and more um, that she doesn't even have a clue about. But I just don't want to bring up my sexual abuse um, because it'll end up getting reported. Or if she doesn't understand that there's a traumatic past, does that completely warp my reality in her eyes? I haven't told her any of the gory details about my splitting and impulsive behaviors. I just haven't gotten the chance yet. I always have too much to say. I understand how my experience can just be seen as depression if you're not getting the full picture. Hmm. Anyway, that was a lot and all over the place, but it brings me back to ask, why do you think we haven't gotten to the root? Okay, this is a great question and I have a lot to say about it. Now, the first portion is, and you have a lot of um potential reasons that you mentioned, and they're all possibilities, but you have to ask her, like you said, I know I'm going to have to talk to her. And yes, that's the truth. But reasons that I would not have gotten to the root with someone that I saw that I've been seeing for like six or seven months. You said January, right? So we're just into July, six or seven months you've been seeing her. Now, because you're in constant crisis is one of those reasons. A lot of what we do with work... How do I explain this? I guess it's like the steps that we take as therapists start off with safety and legal stuff, meaning that if we have to keep you safe from your suicidal ideations or maybe suicide attempts, um, that's going to take priority, safety overall. And and the reason I mentioned legal is because legally we're bound to do that. OK, there's a bunch of different things like uh, but you know, if you're a harm to self or others, we have to like take action and steps to protect you. Um, if you're you know dangerous to someone else, is tear us off. There, there's all sorts of things and reasons why we would put you first and make sure that your safety is, is taken care of. So that crisis is going to be the priority. And we can't do deeper work if we're always in crisis. Because if you, I mean, I'm sure you realize this, and I've mentioned this, but if you didn't know, doing that deeper work can stir up a lot of things in us that maybe we didn't even acknowledge or want to remember, or it can make things harder. So if we're already in crisis, we wouldn't want to dig deeper and cause a more intensive crisis, if that makes sense. We want to keep you safe and we want to get you to a place of stability before we do that deep work. Okay. So there's that. And that also, someone left a comment on this that was very true because I specialize in eating disorder treatment. A lot of my patients, if they're not medically stable, meaning let's say they're not even Eating their meal plan that their dietitian is trying to you know get them to finish their uh, their weight is going down or their weight is going up and so there's not this they aren't stable when it comes to that I'm not going to do that deeper work again because it's only going to cause that to get worse we want some semblance of stability it doesn't mean we have to be like perfect and healed before we can get into stuff but we don't want to be in crisis okay so there's that that's a huge part of it and yes you are correct now. Could it just be your your therapist's style? I don't know why that's a tongue twister sometimes. It could be, but because your therapist does DBT, I don't know, because it can go both ways. Some of my colleagues who do cognitive behavioral therapy, otherwise known as CBT, or dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, can get caught up in tools and techniques and not take the time they need to dig into the root of whatever problem it is. If you hear snoring, which I don't think you will, but my poochie dog is, she's sleeping at my feet and she's snoring up a storm. Um, Anyways, they can get caught up a lot in the tools, but those tools are going to be valuable and just vital to your treatment when you do go looking for the root. So we're kind of laying a foundation and I feel like six or seven months of laying a foundation isn't too long, especially if we struggle with BPD like symptoms and we think we have traits, even though you're a teen, you're pretty sure you have it. Um, yeah, but also having anorexia and stuff, I'd assume she's wanting to build up your tools and resources as well before we try to do that deeper work. So I think that could be playing into it too. Um, now the fact that she's just calling it, um, she's always mentions depression. Doesn't mention any of your other issues. I would bring that up to her. I would ask because I don't think it's like she forgot, but because she can't diagnose you with BPD because you're not 18, that might be. I think it's worth asking because I I have to be honest. I don't. I like there was only I saw what three teenagers in my time, I only see adults in my private practice. And therefore I would never have come across this issue, but that might be why. And I think it's worth asking. I would still have called it DBT or BPD, even if I couldn't technically diagnose you, but your therapist might have a different view on that. And to be honest, I think it's worth asking because it is bothering you. That's the important part. If it's bothering us, we should speak up about it. Um, Let me see. Did I answer everything else? Okay. So why do I think you haven't gotten to the root? I think it's the crisis and I think it's also building uh, resources for you because also a random thought too, because you do have so much trauma and there's so much that's going on and you feel like every week there's so much to talk about, you might want to see, I don't know if you can afford this, I don't know if it's available to you, but you might want to see if you can either A, increase your sessions so that you have two sessions a week with your therapist because that means that one could be like a catch up, like here's all that's going on this week. And the second could be more of a deeper dive into stuff you might want, or maybe you can do a double session. So you go in once a week, but you have twice the amount of time. That's fair to ask. Or as a third option, it might be a more uh, like financially easy option is, are there groups that you could join that could be helpful? I mean, there is hope for recovery. That's hope with the number four recovery. I think it's.org if I'm correct. they offer free groups it's online but they're there and that might be something i feel like you might just be needing a little more support and more time because otherwise you feel like you're just barely catching up and you're always in crisis and whenever i have a patient who's always in crisis for longer than i don't know a couple of months i i consider more sessions or longer sessions because we just need more support we're not even getting into the meat of anything because we're just barely like barely surviving you know it's like almost like we're treading water and so yeah those are my thoughts I hope that helps, okay? Let's move into question number three. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If If. Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? This question says, hi, Katie, can you please talk about microaggressions and how to deal with them, especially when you're already a quiet, shy or socially anxious person? How do you manage to be confident in social settings where you are repeatedly confronted with things that hurt you? For me personally, I am trans, disabled and currently unemployed. A lot of the time, the first thing strangers do is misgender me and ask me what I'm doing for work or study. I know this is meant to be nice, but I can't help but get anxious and often be unable to speak and just feel, um, and overall just feel unwelcome. I've also quite often heard the assumption that this should be easy and everyone should be able to do that with things that I personally find difficult. I know people don't know better, but it hurts and again makes me feel not welcome. These things make it really hard for me to challenge my beliefs that social interactions are scary or that I'm not welcome with people. I hope you can talk about different kinds of microaggressions, though, not just only my situation as this only happens, or as this also happens, sorry, with racism, sexism, homophobia, etc. Okay. Now, I have to be honest, you're not going to like my answer. But I've heard people a lot of times online talk about microaggressions. And like you said, there, I know that these things are meant to be nice. And that's the key here. Because whenever we encounter situations where someone says something that hurts our feelings or is upsetting to us but they like frankly don't know like you said if someone is um, asking you what you're doing for work or study or accidentally misgendering you because maybe they don't know you right so they they're making an assumption it's an incorrect assumption but it's not meant it's not malicious right they're not doing it to to harm you they don't even know they're harming you they're just trying to make conversation which is what we're all trying to do, right? They don't know that you're unemployed, or they don't know that you're disabled, or that things are hard for you. Now, I do that disabled ones a little different for me, because I think that, you know, assuming people can do things easily, you have to consider your audience first. And, you know, so, but anyways, long story short, what this tells me is that we're going to have to do some work on our own, because just engaging with the public, with people who don't know and, and aren't doing, again, aren't doing things purposefully. If someone was purposefully, like continually misgendering you or, or asking if you got a job and it's it's clearly a stressful thing you don't want to talk about and you've already said that, like if someone's doing that on purpose, it's a whole different conversation. But when people do these things and say these things, it's essentially a a reminder to us that we need to build up our resilience because someone saying something in normal conversation, not in a malicious manner is so upsetting that we can't handle it, right? We can't have, like you said, you're unable to speak and you feel like you're not welcome there. So what this tells me is instead of trying to work about like, maybe we need to take a break from social situations and build up our own self. Now, what does that look like? Because you're asking like, how do we deal with them? What this work looks like is, taking care of basic needs. So I think because of the, I would assume the disability and unemployment, there are added stressors in your life. And so we need to do our best to manage those. Now, what does that mean? That could be making sure we're taking our medication as prescribed, making sure we're sleeping enough each day. A a full night's sleep is like life changing. So if there are things you need to do, like maybe we need to check in on our, what we can get through our disability benefits. And can we get maybe a mechanical, bed? I don't know what your disability is, but I'm just speaking to like people in my family. Like I, uh, my aunt has MS and it's, it's pretty progressed. And so they got her a new bed through, you know, that lifts up so that she can uh, make herself more comfortable. And, and she has the ability cause she can still move her arms. She has the ability to do that. So is that something that you need? Is, is there extra support that you need? Maybe through your disability benefits, you can have someone come and help you clean your home so that you don't feel so unkempt or overwhelmed. Sometimes a dirty home can, not only is it stigmatizing, people judge others for the, and I wish we would stop doing that, but it also can make our mind feel cluttered because our space is cluttered. And so looking into some things to take care of that can be life-changing. You know, maybe we get a new pillow, again, going back to the sleep component, but um, basic needs. Are we drinking enough water? Are we eating regularly? Are we eating like balanced meals? And no, this does not mean good or bad food. This means, are we getting protein, carbohydrate, vegetable, or fruit? Like, are we getting a balanced meal? Are we eating every three to four hours? These are things that I would want you to check in on because these microaggressions are so disruptive to you that that, like I've talked about this before, in my video about trigger words, how when we overreact, I know we think of overreaction as a bad word. It's not. It's super helpful in therapy. So if we have an overreaction, that's a red flag for something deeper going on. And so when you're telling me that this like throws you off your game so much, you're unable to speak, you don't feel like you're welcome there. I'm like, something else is happening. We need to take care of ourselves because someone's accidental, uh, the way that they accidentally spoke, not knowing you, is so disruptive right and i want you to be able to weather essentially what i would call like everyday life storms things that are going to happen when you interact with new people and when we put ourselves out there and when especially when people don't know us people can assume all sorts of things without realizing right and so we want to build up our resilience um, if you're not in therapy i would encourage you to get into therapy um if you're looking for a job, I would encourage you to you know one of your homework assignments would be like each week I like you to apply for one, you know maybe a work from home job or a, a easy job for you to get to. Um, I don't again I don't know what your disability is and what that means for your ability to get around, but those are just some things that I would encourage you to do. Um, and if if it is anxiety driven and you've tried tools and you're like I'm too anxious to even use these, that might be um, a again, like a red flag to let us know that maybe we should reach out to see a psychiatrist and see if medication could be beneficial. Make sure you always ask for uh, contraindications or any interactions those medications might have. If you are on medication regularly, that's really important too. But overall, those are my thoughts about it. Um, I think a lot of times people say and do things, I'm not saying that there's no, that the people who say harmful things aren't also responsible. But when we talk about microaggressions, I per—I personally struggle with that term because microaggressions are honestly just people not knowing. I think it's like some people are getting harmed by someone's just ignorance. And that doesn't mean that they don't want to know. It's just that they they don't know, right? We're ignorant to the facts, so we can't act in a certain way. But once we do know those things, then we can act in a way that's appropriate, that's not harmful. And so I really struggle with that term microaggressions because as a therapist, to me, I'm like, that means that we're overreacting and we're going to have to find a way to better manage our own dysregulation, right? And that's why it's really about that resilience. And so I would focus your energy on doing kind of the, the halt, the hungry, angry, lonely, tired making sure we're taking care of those basic needs um, and finding connection through people who know us well first. That's usually easier. And even if, if we don't, let's say we don't have any close friends and we don't talk to our family, therapy is a great place to practice those types of things. A therapist is a safe space to, to talk about what you're worried about and to practice communicating with another person and asking about body language and understanding comments and and talking about what's upsetting to you so we can better understand where that's coming from. Because some of the microaggressions you might find so harmful could be like, again, we're overreacting. It's a good thing. It's helpful in therapy. It's a red flag to be like, hey, this is like a pattern from our childhood, or this is a pattern from being bullied in school, or this is something that happened to us before. It's important to know that. Because then we can have tools and techniques that we use that are helpful in the moment when someone might say or do something that triggers that response, right? Then I can't tell you how empowering this will be and how much better you will feel when people can say and do what they want and you feel at peace and okay with it because you have resources to use so that their misunderstandings or their way of interacting that we don't like doesn't have to affect us directly does that make sense you feel like I don't know like powerful like you have your little like resilience shield up and that's what I want you to to build and yes you can build it and yes it will get easier and better um but yeah overall when when we're when we find things that people usually are meant to be nice and they say things not realizing we find that extremely upsetting and it throws us off our game that's indicative of us needing to build up our own uh, ability to weather life storms okay Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I've been going to therapy for about three months and it's been an emotional roller coaster. Therapy is like that, isn't it? I've been uncovering past trauma, physical and emotional abuse. And also, I've always been the parentified child who only cares for others and not for myself. I've been bottling my emotions and stuffing them down my whole entire life. Just recently, this treasure chest of emotions has opened and all it was opened and it all completely bombarded me. I've been living in this spiral of millions of emotions and it's all making me feel so depressed. Is this normal? Could it be that I was moving too fast in therapy because I feel so exhausted after sessions? How long can this ongoing spiral of overwhelming emotions last? Is there anything I can do to make myself feel better? I feel so lost. I'm so sorry. Therapy can be exhausting and it is kind of an emotional roller coaster, but let's kind of walk through this a little bit. Now, If you're exhausted after sessions and you don't feel better ever, now we can have tough sessions, meaning if I'm doing some deep work with my therapist and she's really challenging me to view things in a new way, I can leave sessions still crying. I can sit in my car and cry and I can want to take a nap after. I'm like, oh, it took like all my energy just to be there. And that whole week I can be left considering patterns of behavior and I can just feel kind of in it but that should not be every session and every week. Sometimes I should feel lighter when I leave. I should be like, oh, that was so good. Yes, I might still feel kind of tired, but I I feel like I have some tools. I have some homework. And overall, I start to incrementally feel better. It's not black and white. It's not all or nothing. I don't all of a sudden like Snap my fingers, feel better. And I also shouldn't feel like shit every time. So the fact that you're feeling exhausted after sessions, I just kind of want to understand more what that means. Like, how bad is this exhaustion? How tired are we? What are we going through? Are we feeling worse since we started therapy? Now, yes, I also. And I know this is kind of complicated, but I also want to acknowledge the fact that that during the therapy process, there's this period sometimes where it gets worse before it gets better. And this is usually when we're challenging patterns of behavior. This could be when we're fighting back against our eating disorder or self-injury urges. Or for me, it was like trying to break out of old patterns that weren't helpful. That early part of like fighting back against those urges is exhausting and very difficult. Now, is it impossible? No. Um, But does it leave us feeling... Uh, like worse for a while before better? Yes. Because essentially it's new. We're like building a new muscle. We're trying out something new. It's uncomfortable. It's different. We don't like it and we don't know what we're doing maybe fully. And so there is that, there are those periods. Okay. However, you've been in there for three months I feel like you should have had a few days where you feel better or a few times where all of a sudden you have aha moments or like, oh, you know, like the homework is is helpful or I don't know, something like that. So just you're going to know your experience best. Those are just my thoughts about that part of therapy. Okay. The first like three months. Now, could it be that you're moving too fast? Yes. That could be why you're so exhausted. and It's overwhelming. That's why it's kind of important to take stock and let your therapist know, hey, every session I'm just exhausted. And I don't know if it's because we're going too fast, like bring it up, talk about it, because then we can have a real conversation and we can decide what, what is best. Should we do one tough session, one easier session? I do that with a lot of my patients going back and forth because that good session or lighter session, gives them time to dump what happened that week. Also gives them time to talk about just, you know, kind of what I would call your surface level things like, oh, this lady at work is so rude and I had to deal with that. And then, you know, I don't know, I had this thing break at our, on our car and it cost me X amount and I'm stressed. And just talking about daily stressors and daily upsets, sometimes it's nice to just kind of keep it, not that that's light, but keeping it light, not digging into past and digging up old repressed memories, maybe, you know, So maybe you could do that. You can talk to your therapist about that. Now, about the emotions, okay, these overwhelming emotions. The thing that's interesting, and just hear me out. This is another answer I don't think you guys are going to like, but emotions do not last that long. The reason you're feeling so many all at once is because you're, there's two things, I think. Either we're going too fast in therapy and we don't, we're not giving ourselves time to even process what we've done before we're doing it again. So that's one that maybe is causing it. But the second is sometimes when we feel these overwhelming emotions come up in therapy and we feel like we've opened Pandora's box, it's like filled to the brim with everything that instead of acknowledging what's coming up, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I, I feel, I don't know, I feel anxious and now I feel worried about this. And then I feel really sad. And, and just kind of, I know it sounds crazy to try to name and acknowledge all of our emotions. I'm not saying you have to name and acknowledge millions of them, but if you took about 10 or 15 minutes each day, yes, I know it's a time commitment, but this is making you so depressed and overwhelmed. So it's worth a shot. Take 10 to 15 minutes each day. Go to the feelingswheel.com or go to a feelings list online. Doesn't feelings chart. You can look them up, they're everywhere pull it up on your phone, on your laptop, scroll, and just kind of look and see which ones resonate with you. What are you feeling today? And then give it a little context, okay, if you're able. So let's say I'm feeling sad. So I could be like, I'm feeling sad because um, I'm grieving the loss of my childhood. I thought it was better than it was. And, and I'm also just overwhelmed with work or I don't know. So I'm feeling kind of sad today. Okay, boom, sad check. We still have time left. It's only been a couple minutes. Okay, Um, The other thing I'm feeling is I'm kind of feeling excited. I have vacation coming up that long weekend. I've been really looking forward to it. I'm excited about that, right? So just start to acknowledge some of the emotions that are coming up. Now, will they be this simple? Maybe not, but try to get through at least three, ideally five every time you check in, but let's try for three. If three is too much, start with one. One is better than none. So let's start trying to identify and give a little context to those emotions because I find my patients who Have been stuffing down how they feel for a really long time. When we finally open it up and they start really talking, they struggle to let the emotions actually be without judgment or without trying to then put them back in the box. It's funny. I've had patients who like scramble, like all their defense mechanisms are out and in full effect as they try to put the emotions back in the box. It's like we were trying to logic our way out of it black and white thinking right then we're we're going into we're shutting down boom we can't and then we're you know we're blaming we're shaming we're we're doing all sorts of things if you find that's that's you breathe and try to identify a couple of them and again without judgment we're almost like uh observers of our emotional experience instead of having to be like an actor or in it we get to kind of be removed and be like, well, that's interesting that that brought that up for me, right? That's kind of part of the, the work that I think we all should be doing is instead of judging ourselves for lashing out or shutting down or whatever, consider, hmm, this really upset me. Why? Where is this coming from? And why was this particularly triggering? You know, and again, it's that curiosity, not judgment. We, we jump to judge so much. And I think it's really helpful, especially when we're just getting to know our emotions, to do just that, get to know them. There's no judgment. We're feeling emotions from forever ago. We might not even know what they're tied to, but I want you to tell me what you do know and where they're coming from and how often maybe you felt that. Or was this an emotion? Like, what was the story that your family told you about this emotion? Is it bad to feel sad? Is it bad to feel angry? Is it bad to feel happy? I don't know. What messages did you receive? Like, I know this seems like really tedious work, and it is, but it's incredibly beneficial. And I feel like it's truly the only way out of what can feel like an emotional spiral or emotional roller coaster. I hope that helps and makes sense. You'll get there. Let your therapist know this is happening and try some of the that homework, okay? Now, there was a comment on this that said, me too. Now, when my therap- therapist asks me, how are you? I really want to tell her that I stopped functioning ever since I saw her. She doesn't push me to go too fast, but out of sessions, I uncover so many memories on my own. It's been exhausting. I know it gets worse before it gets better, but I need to function and keep my job. We are increasing sessions, wonderful, but I'm afraid it's not enough. Any advice? Let her know this is happening. And we might need a longer. Hmm. Okay. I have a couple thoughts. I have, this has happened to me with many of my patients. So you have to let me know if this is going to, if this works for you. So increasing sessions would have been one of my first recommendations. Awesome that you're doing that. Second, is giving yourself more time to like come down from therapy, meaning that let's say you have 50 minute sessions around like the 30 minute mark, your therapist might want to start lightening the conversation, wrapping up the deep work and lightening it or doing one tough session, one easy session, like I talked about earlier. Those are all kind of opportunities to kind of help you pull out of this so you don't continue to feel overwhelmed. And then third, and the one that has honestly worked the best for me, is I have my patients close their eyes and I tell them to to create a space for for what our work together. Like a big closet or a room or a house, like create a space. Like what would it look like? And we, we take time putting this together. It sounds silly, but we do it usually over like an entire session, maybe two. Put together this space for me. Like for instance, one of my patients had this, it almost reminded me of like the Little Mermaid, the way she described it where it was like this closet, but it had like floor to ceiling shelving filled with bottles, like an apothecary, like a ton of little bottles. And she would, at the end of our session, I'd say, "Let now let's pick a bottle. And she would pick a bottle and I'd say, tell me what it looks like. Okay, so let's say it's orange and it's tall and skinny. And it's got a cork in the top. I'd say, okay, pull that bottle from the shelf. Now I want you to put what we worked on today in this bottle. And then when we start next time, we will come, we'll find that bottle and we'll open it back up. Now I know you're like, Katie, this is really fucking woo woo. Why? Why would you spend time doing this? What a waste of a session. No, this is called compartmentalization. And it's really important when we're doing deep, hard work that can affect our life. And like you said, I have to keep my job. Like we can't fuck all our shit up. We have to keep it compartmentalized. Is this something that we'll do forever? No, we will. (laughs) And at least with my patients, we will uh, take that room apart at a certain point because we don't need it anymore and we'll have to like kind of have a destruction session where we destroy it and, and we thank it for what purpose it was but we, we remove it and that's its own process which don't worry about that now but it can help to visually put in the things that we're working on close them up and leave them with me meaning you leave them with your therapist you're not taking it with you so you're not opening that up later and uncovering more of these memories and being overwhelmed and the fact that you're doing that, it's it's helpful because your brain's like, thank God we can finally work on this. Oh my God, I have so much to, to tell you, but we can't have it wrecking our days. And so we need to have that space, that apothecary type or whatever it looks like for you. I've had patients who treat it almost like um, the Dewey Decimal System, like a library, like they pull out those long, and then maybe this ages me, but that's when I grew up with the Dewey Decimal. You pull out those things and they put it on cards, file it away, shut it. I don't know, whatever works for you, wherever you want to put it, however you want to deal with it. But having that visualization can be really healing. And then I used to take notes and I'd say, okay, we're going to grab that tall, you know, orange skinny bottle with the cork on top and let's open it up and let's get back in. And that was how we would like start sessions and end sessions. And so that could help too. It can kind of help us help prevent us from getting overwhelmed by what we're working on and let us keep it at therapy, like keep it at the office. That's why we call like therapy offices, like holding spaces, because you can dump all your shit here and we can hold it and think of it, you know, whatever visualizations again, work for you. I hope that helps. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hi, Katie, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? Sean and I went out to dinner indoors and we haven't gone back out to dinner indoors for a little while. And so I'm just praying we don't get COVID because last time we got COVID, I mean, it was back in March. So it's been a while, but I feel like everybody I know is getting COVID. Anybody else? Okay. Moving along. says, my question is, how do you know what to work on in therapy when it seems like there are just too many big things you need to work through? Hmm. I've been focusing on certain issues lately because they are more recent or time sensitive. That's important. I do that too. But I also have a lifetime of trauma, abuse and other major things that I need that I feel need more attention. It feels impossible to get through everything, but a lot of the things that I need to work on affect each other. And I don't know where to begin or how to cover it all. Thanks for everything. Of course. Okay. Great question. Now, a couple of thoughts. First of all, time sensitive first, always. And again, like safety first. So things that need to be taken care of or need to be, uh, Managed because we could lose our job or we could lose a relationship or we could fail a class or whatever. Those things are always first. And that's just how we operate because it's your life and we don't want anything to get any worse. We want to be able to sustain while we do the hard work. So that's great. Then, if you feel able, and I'm hopefully your therapist already knows, but telling your therapist this, saying, I've got a lot of shit to work on. I have a lifetime of trauma. I have abuse and other major things I need to get through. And I feel like we're only getting through this. Can we put together a treatment plan? Therapists do these all the time. It's important to to, to create one of these. And essentially what a treatment plan is, is loosely you put the things like, how would you know that you're done with therapy? right? And the You can do them smaller than this, but let's just say we're doing a big one. So how would you know when you don't need therapy anymore? And then let's work backwards from that. And then we set these goals throughout that timeline to keep us on track and to make sure we're still working through them. And then you know, we periodically assess this treatment plan. Is Are these still the goals? Is this still what you want? Are these still the issues? Maybe we're done with that one. We can move on to the next, you know? um. So we revisit this. It's like a living document, but it can keep us on track and help us feel like we're making progress so that we don't feel like I'm just never going to get through it all, you know? And when it comes to trauma and abuse, I think it's important also to mention that my friend Alexa had told me, oh God, it's been years ago now, I guess it's probably like in 2019, 2020. But she had told me that there's research to prove, because if you don't know, uh, Alexa, Dr. Alexa Allman does EMDR. So she's a certified EMDR specialist and a trauma specialist. And when working on specific traumas, we find that the ones that are similar in, uh, they have similar situations or similar, similar traumas, let's just say that, a blanket statement that they, they're very similar. Working on one essentially processes the others because they have so much in common. It's like our brain has lumped those ones together. Now, these could be lumped together because of our age. They could be lumped together because of the person involved. This could be lumped together because of the type of trauma, let's say it was emotional neglect or something, right? And other it was like a physical abuse. It, we could, whatever the thing it is, or whatever the reason is for this pattern, that could allow us to work on one, but actually work on many. Does that make sense? It's like by wiping out one, we wipe out the others. And so don't think that you're going to have to go through each and every one of your traumas that you've sustained in your lifetime, because chances are, you're not going to have to. I find through talking with tons of members of our community, that what ends up happening, and Alexa said this too, is that we start with maybe smaller traumas, meaning not as emotionally triggering or emotionally uh, upsetting. And then once we start to feel neutral or safe, then we can move into what I would call like one of our more like core shaking traumas. These would be like our bigger traumas, ones that we replay over and over have been extremely upsetting and continue to upset us. We work on that one for a quite a while. And processing that one usually knocks out a shitload of others. And that's kind of the process is we do little ones kind of building up into that big one. And that's kind of the the meat of the work. And usually not all the time, but a lot of times my patients will have like one or two major trauma experiences or trauma, like trauma all around one person. Like for instance, uh, one of my patients, her father was her main abuser. So working on the, the her father and the stuff with him was like the that was all that was it. That was the crux of it. Yeah, there were other traumas where she, you know, I, not to get into details about her, but like let's say that uh, we we were abused by our father, but then also later in life we got into a relationship that was abusive. Now, yes, that could be just as harmful. I'm not ranking these by any means. I'm just saying that working on a big one can sometimes wipe out those others right and because maybe our relationship with our father was so tumultuous we struggle within relationships with men and we're attracted to men so we ended up in a relationship with a man and he was abusive just like our father and it reminded us of that and maybe the work that we do in processing our abuse from our father also uh, takes away the emotional charge attached to that domestic violence or that abusive relationship does that make sense so don't think you have to go through each and every one i hope that's clear Now, um, it always feels like there's too many big things to work through. I would talk to your therapist and the best advice, again, so those are kind of my thoughts. And my final thought is putting together a trauma timeline can be incredibly helpful. Now, what is a trauma timeline? It's exactly like what it sounds like. Now, again, these are living and breathing documents, meaning you're going to be changing them all the time. So maybe do it in pencil and leave a bunch of space. Don't cram. Don't like cram it up. Like make sure you have like a long amount of space on a paper. Um, we used to do it in the treatment center. We'd have this big butcher paper roll that we'd rip it off um, because you want to have space and along the timeline of your life, so birth to now. I want you to put in some markers. Like, let's say we have a clear memory of going to middle school. We remember that first day of school or something. Remember what we were wearing or our first dance. Or when we're little, we remember our like playing t ball, right? We have these random memories. I want you to start slotting those in roughly about the age that you think you were. Right now, there's no need for it to be uh, specific. You don't need to know exactly. We're never going to need to know exactly, but we'll get better as we start doing this work and putting this trauma timeline together. And this is something that you'll work on with your therapist as you do this work in general. Like you'll continue to add to it and move things around but this could be helpful too for you because you're feeling overwhelmed by like all this stuff that's happened. It can sometimes help to get it out on a timeline and that can kind of help us feel more contained. And so that can be beneficial too. And so, yeah, bring this up with your therapist. You could work on a treatment plan or, you know, tell them you don't know where to begin or how to cover it all. Um, working on a trauma timeline is is really helpful. And know that working on um, processing through one of the, the bigger uh, traumatic events or repeated situations with one person or one type of situation, working on that will wipe out others. So don't think you have to go through each and every one. And also be open to other types of therapy. Through doing research for my book, Traumatized, I realized that for a lot of people, talk therapy is like 60% of people aren't helped by just talk therapy. Yes, talk therapy is always beneficial, but it might not be enough for you to get full resolution of your symptoms, meaning you could still feel like you have symptoms of PTSD. And therefore, we might need something adjunctive like an EMDR or a somatic experiencing, which is like through movement, or maybe we want, uh, we need something like a schema therapy or attachment base, right? We might just need something different or even like vagus nerve stimulation. That's another treatment option. So there's a bunch of things that we could do um, if talk therapy is not enough. Now another, there's a comment. said, great question. I totally relate to this too. The hour flies by and it feels like we're just getting started. Would it be okay to ask for longer sessions or more sessions? Or is this something a therapist initiates? Yes, it's completely okay. And I highly encourage you to ask for longer or more sessions when we don't feel like we have enough time in therapy. And I talk about this in my first book, Are You Okay? Is like, if we always feel like we're just barely getting through like what happened that week. And there's not enough time to like process anything. And we don't feel like we're making any progress asking for longer or more sessions is completely fine. Like I've told you guys many times, there was a period in my life when I was going twice a week and I was, uh, I was just completely overwhelmed. So I needed more time. I was planning Sean and I's wedding, which is super stressful. I was studying for my licensing exam and that, uh, yeah, that'll do it. And working a full-time job and doing YouTube. <laughs> It was a lot. I was overwhelmed. I was like crying at work. It was horrible. So I had to get into therapy more more often. And I encourage you to ask. Now, a therapist can initiate it if they see something happening, but usually it's initiated by the patient. So go ahead and ask. Totally normal. Okay, let's move on to question number six. This question says, Hi, Katie. How do you find the balance between pushing through the anxiety to do new things without getting too overwhelmed? I used to be the type of person who would let my anxiety get in the way of exciting things. And I would say no to almost all new or scary opportunities. Oh, interesting. I would later break my heart. Oh, this would later break my heart because I missed out on something. Yeah, he had FOMO. This disappointment then led me to forcing myself to say yes to everything. Look at this black and white action, all or nothing. But then feeling so anxious and regretting my decision to participate later. I have had ton of exciting opportunities come up lately, and I would love to do them, but I feel so anxious and sick about the unknown. I have a lot of self-doubt in my abilities to participate or to live up to people's expectations. I'm tired of letting my anxiety get in the way, but I also know it's not healthy for me to push myself too far. How do I decide what opportunities to take on and what to let go? Thank you. Okay. Now, a couple of things. First of all, I hope you're in therapy. If you're not, I would encourage you to get into therapy. We're going to need some support and some, we need some practice managing our anxiety. Now I know you have a bunch of things coming up right now, so this might just be more down the line, but my overall goal would be for you to better understand and get to know your anxiety. You know what? I even have a managing your anxiety workbook. Uh, I'll make sure it's linked in the description. I'll make a note so I don't forget, but um, link workbook in the description there we go but i i think that that sorry guys doing two things at once okay that workbook could be something you could use today and start working on now that could be incredibly helpful for you um like I said therapy can be really beneficial because what I'm going to want you to do is to get to know your anxiety, find ways to calm your system down. Now this could be like back to question number 1 where I was talking about full body shakes and um you know going for walks, do we need like thought based? Do we need action based? Do we need in action based like the breathing exercises or stretching or things like that? What do we need? Because it sounds to me, I'm just it sounds to me like you don't have any tools. And so All we do is either go all in or not in at all. And what I would encourage you to do is to prioritize. So personally, let me speak. I'll speak for myself is that like I'm I get exhausted by social interaction with people I don't know really well. And so going to events like VidCon or Playlist Live, while I love them and look forward to them, they're extremely exhausting. And so in order for me to enjoy it and to have to be able to participate in the things I want to, I prioritize those things. Meaning that before a certain event, let's say, I really love my meet and greets. That's like always my favorite. I get to see all of you. I get to take pictures. We get to talk. We get, I get to answer questions. We hang out for a couple of hours. So I love that. I want to make sure I can do that. So I make sure that's the only big thing that day. Meaning I can take a nap afterwards, usually after a meet and greet, Sean and I'll go grab food and then I'll take a nap. And that recharges me so that let's say there's a party later in the evening that I want to go to, probably not, but maybe, or something then I can get up and I can do that. Or I'll, I'll sleep in more before. I don't want my day to be back to back to back to meet and greet. You know, I'll be too burnt out. And so that's, I know that that's not anxiety, but it's the same type of idea where if you do too much and don't give yourself time to calm down, you don't use your resources, use your full body shakes, use your uh, coloring or your journaling or your Sudoku or your whatever, whatever, your breathing exercises, whatever helps you. If we don't use those skills and give ourselves time to use those skills, we're gonna become overwhelmed. And so I cannot encourage you enough to not let yourself go into this all or nothing black and white. Let's prioritize the events that we really want to be a part of. Come up with some coping skills, try them out before the moment, right? Try them out in your everyday life. Use some of those tools when you don't even maybe feel that anxious. Just notice how it makes you feel like if I do a full body shake, if I'm feeling a little like I don't know, tense it helps me feel better. I actually feel it even if I'm not anxious. I feel its benefits. So try some of these out and see if you feel the benefits of them and then put them on your list and then make sure they're accessible when you go to do one of these very exciting opportunities. Um, Yeah, that's my advice. So therapy, coming up with some tools to calm your system down, whatever those might be, practicing them ahead of time and prioritizing the events that are the most important to you. Okay. And also my workbook, my anxiety workbook could be helpful so that you could get started today. It's a downloadable. So you just download it. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, Hi, Katie, how do you take care of yourself when you're dissociated or depersonalized? When the body uh, is separate from me, and I don't feel hunger or pain, or when it feels like a stranger, and I can't bring myself to go the extra mile for the stranger, the body is struggling with gastric pains and headaches. And when I'm more grounded, but hair loss and acne, et cetera. I want to take care of this body, but it's so hard. Any advice. Now, when we're dissociated or depersonalized, we're we can be out of self. And that's what that this person's describing is like your their body, their body feels separate, like it's not theirs. It's a, like it's a body. And so my my advice is first of all to get into therapy and talk to someone. And I really think we're gonna to need to work on some grounding techniques. Now grounding my the best grounding techniques I have to be honest I've heard it from you I've heard it from my patients is changing the temperature splash some cold water in your face take a cold shower put a cold rag on your neck hold cold ice cubes put the cold ice cubes on your uh like on your wrists like because it's like your blood flow it really cools you down random random fact um kangaroos who live in Australia, and I'm sure they live in other parts of the world too, but in Australia it gets particularly hot, right? Australia is, I don't know if you guys realize the continent, especially in the middle, super hot. Kangaroos live there. They dig into the ground. So it's because it's cooler down below and they put their paws there and then they lick the insides of their legs as a way to cool because they make it wet, right? And then it's like creating a little, a little radiator to let the heat out. Genius. Anyway, so we can put cold Ice cubes or washcloths on our wrists to cool our system down and our neck too. Again, we're hitting big veins, right? You could put it in your hips also, but I find that to be too triggering. So the the cooling of the system, the changing of the temperature can be great. If you're in a cold area right now and it's like wintertime, just walk outside for like five minutes. Now, that's one option. We can also count colors, how many things in this area are green or blue. And you and, and then the ABC game. It's just another option is like looking around. What's something that starts with A? Okay. You know, the alarm, our alarm system, what's something that starts with B, right? And we go through A, B, C, D, all those many as we can. And it can be, it forces our brain to focus and it can pull us back in. And so I think instead of just taking care of yourself when you're dissociated, it's like, how do I stop being dissociated? How do I ground myself? Um, Thinking putty helps for some people. I don't know. It can be uh, exercise has helped some of my patients. There's a lot of different grounding techniques, but I find the ones I just mentioned to be the most beneficial. But you do you. Whatever helps you is fine. That would be my focus. Instead of how do you take care of yourself when you're that way, I would encourage you to find ways to ground yourself and to notice the dissociation happening. I talk about, I have a whole chapter in my book, Traumatized, just about dissociation. I think you might find that helpful. There's tons of tools and resources and things that you can use. But that that would be my goal because it's almost like instead of treating it down the line, we want to treat it here because treating it down the line, trying to get you to take care of yourself when you're a it's going to be really difficult because if you're not present, it's hard. I can tell you, I have patients who will completely forget to take their medicine and forget to do the things they need to do, be late to work, space, space and time just seems like, I don't know, it's like they'll all of a sudden come to and it's been like six hours and they have no recollection, right? It, I feel like it's it's really difficult to do that, which is why you're struggling, which is part of the reason why we want to find out what's triggering our dissociation. want to get to know our dissociation more. What's triggering it? And then how can we ground when we feel it pulling us away, right? And that would be like the cold water and stuff like that. And if anybody has any other uh, better grounding techniques, let us know. And it says, you says your body's struggling with gastric pains and headaches when you're more grounded. Are you ever fully present? I wonder, is is it like on a spectrum of dissociation? Because, you know, then it might be something that we want to talk to our therapist or our doctor about. Um, And, you know, if we can, when we are more grounded, we can prepare ahead for future us. That could be another way to help us. Like, if we're struggling to eat regularly, we can set alarms on our phone and then have microwavable meals ready. I know some people will be like, Katie, microwavable meals are like processed or not good enough for you. Or, hey, they're better than nothing. And we have to meet ourselves where we're at. And there's, this is not a space for judgment. We're going to do the best we can with what we have. And if you want to make meals when you feel more grounded and then freeze them so you can just microwave them or heat them up on the stove, we can do that too. Um, but setting alarms can be helpful and making sure we're to make sure we're eating regularly make sure we're drinking water regularly. Um, You can get one of those big jugs people have that tells you how much you should be drinking throughout the day. That could be helpful. Anyway, those are just some tools and techniques and things. I guess my thoughts. I hope it helps. Our final question, question number eight. Says, hey, Katie, I love your channel. I've been watching you since the beginning. That's amazing and also cringy. The beginning was very cringy. <laughs> Says, you're a, uh, a distant part of my healing journey. So thank you for all that you do. Of course, I'm glad I could be any part of it. That's wonderful. I was wondering, what is a good reason for your therapist to terminate care? Good question. I had a therapist when I was in rehab who still saw me in between stays and also, or as she also works outpatient. I've done that with patients too. I was hospitalized and discharged from rehab due to suicide out al- what? Oh, your rehab facility discharged you and you were hospitalized due to. Su- okay. Got you. Due to suicidality. When I was released from the hospital, my therapist called me on the phone and said she wasn't going to treat me anymore because I wasn't making progress. Interesting. I didn't understand that because I had opened up to her and honestly expressed my feelings. And that's why I was hospitalized in the first place. Ooh. I asked her to give me at least 30 days and she refused. She did refer me to another therapist. Wow. Okay. But I was heartbroken, especially because I was recovering from drug addiction, suicidal thoughts, and actively struggling with an eating disorder. I've watched some of your videos and this seems extremely unethical. Am I wrong? Again, thank you for all that you do. And I hope you're feeling okay. I am. Thanks. Um, You're not wrong. Now, A therapist, there's many reasons a therapist can terminate care. So let me address that first. Now we can terminate care because you aren't making any progress, meaning you need a higher level of care or different care. I've referred patients out for a ton of different reasons. Like um, they've been lying to me and they aren't making any progress. And when they are making progress, it's only because they've lied to me about their progress. I've, I've terminated care for that. I've terminated care because, um, I mean, for me, it's usually a higher level of care is needed, but also it could be that it's not a good fit. They need a different specialization. I'm not the one for them. Um, I have terminated care because they're doing so well. They don't really need me anymore. And we've like titrated down. Um, I terminated care because I was moving. Okay. So there are reasons, and there are other reasons. I'm sure other therapists out there are like shouting, like, you didn't mention X, Y, or Z. There are a lot of different reasons that therapists can terminate care. However, we cannot just terminate care. Um, the way that it works eth- ethically, not legally, but ethically, which is, in my mind, just as important, is to tell you that, care is going to end and give you a deadline, like give you the end date. And depending on how long you've been seeing a patient or especially leaving you in crisis feels completely unethical. You can't leave a patient in crisis. Now there is this caveat because I've dealt with borderline personality disorder patients for years, where when I will tell my patients that I think they need you know, a trauma specialist or you need more attachment-based work. And so I'm going to refer you they immediately throw themselves into crisis that's different that's more of a reactivity and i still give them plenty of time like then then here's my point is that even when you're terminating care you you have to give them like you said 30 days that would be like a minimum i think usually if i've been seeing a patient i at least give 30 days sometimes i give in 90 days I want to make sure that you're transitioned over, that we find you somewhere else to be. I don't just want to drop you. That's what's unethical. That's called patient abandonment. So what happened to you was actually patient abandonment. Now, because she just referred you to another therapist, but didn't give you any time to to see her till you find a new place to be. To me, that is very, yeah, it's very unethical. And that's, that's because we want continuity of care. We want our patients to be taken care of. We can't just abandon you. That's not... That's not okay. I mean, it, that could lead to, you know, increased suicidal thoughts or attempts. Someone could take their life. It, it's just not a safe place. And that's not something that a therapist should do. So, yeah, really the good reason for a therapist to terminate care would be that you need a higher level or that you need something more specialized or different or that you're doing great. And you don't need it. Or I've also, I've actually also terminated care because a patient wasn't ready to work on anything. Like they just didn't want to be there. They felt like they should, but they weren't motivated. And I said, how about we take a break? I mean, I guess it wasn't termination though, because I was like, how about we take a break until you are ready to work on things? And it took, I think he called back a main appointment maybe six months, a year later. And I was fine. I mean, as long as there's no crisis, right? If you're not ready, why are you paying money when you don't want to do the work? I don't want to take your money and waste your time and I don't want you, you know, taking up my time when someone else might be motivated and want to come in. So, that's those are my thoughts. That's very unethical. Yes, she can terminate because you aren't making progress, thinking that you need some someone different, higher level of care or something like that. I'm really bummed out that you finally were uh, honest with her and then she hospitalized you i'd be curious about that like did you have the means and were you planning to try to take your life like why did she hospitalize you i have a lot of thought, uh, questions about that too because suicidal thoughts are really common and they don't hospitalization can be just as traumatizing if not more so anyways it's it's very upsetting to me and i'm so sorry Ugh. i hope you're able to find a better therapist i think it is extremely unethical. You have every right to be upset, but I don't want this to hinder your progress. I don't want this to stop you from going to see someone else because you could find someone who's a great fit, who gets you, who can meet you where you're at and help you continue recovering because you're doing such fucking hard work and we need that support to keep us moving along our way. Makes sense? I hope so. I hope that helps. And I'm so sorry. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. I hope this was helpful. I hope Everything made sense. Sometimes I'm like, I am really rambling here and I don't really know if it's clear. But thank you for sending in your questions. Again, go over to the community tab on our YouTube channel with the podcast to ask your questions. I ask for them on Sundays so you can check sometime. I'm trying to change the times where I post them. I think right now they're posting at like 3 p.m. Central Standard Time, but they move around just for different time zones. So when you get up on Sunday, just check and see if I've posted and you can ask your question then. Thank you so much for all of your wonderful reviews and for sharing this with friends and family. You have no idea how much this helps. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next time. Bye.